well. There are some incredibly heroic people right around here and up there in the tech booth who are making all this happen. And um, I'm, I really, I have not been anxious at all through all of this because it's been, it's been encouraging to see everybody work together to make worship happen. And worship really is all of us coming together to, uh, to praise God. And I'm just, I'm just so incredibly grateful for all of this. Um, so I won't apologize for any of that because you see God at work in that. And um, if I do need to apologize to you, it's that sometimes I worry that my sermons will seem a little too much like a history lesson. And um, I don't want to bore anyone with details of things that happened long ago. But I won't apologize too much because I want you to know your story. I want you to know the story of God's people and the story of the God who loves you and the Savior who rescued you. And if you don't know your story, then you don't know who you are. When we learn the story of God's people, we are really after the story of God. We want to learn about his faithfulness and his love to those who went before us. We want to know how he led them when they trusted and how he graciously corrected them when they sinned. When we read the history of the Bible, we're not reading somebody else's story. We're reading our own story. And this is a very biblical approach also. The Bible spans centuries. And in that time, it actually references itself. Uh, It'll refer to other Bible stories. For instance, Jesus will mention Jonah, and he'll mention Sodom and Gomorrah. He'll mention Moses and David and Abraham. And he'll say that what God did with those people mattered in his time, and it matters now in our time. The prophets before Jesus would do this as well, asking the people to remember the stories that they heard. In all of this change that we're going through, I keep thinking that the exile and the story of the exile is very instructive to us. Because in the exile, we learn what God's people went through when things were not what it was supposed to be. We learned what it's like when God's people lose the things that they had come to take for granted, like going to church and being the church and worshiping. And when everything goes wrong, they still learn what it means to be God's people. And it challenges some of our thinking about what actually pleases God. It it challenges where we may have misplaced our trust, maybe for our whole lives. Now in Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah is asked to preach a very risky sermon. The year that Jeremiah is asked to do this is 609 B.C. Now that's 22 years before the exile in 587. Yeah, time in B.C. goes backwards, so 609 is actually earlier than 587. Um, But 22 years before they lost their king, before they lost their land, before they lost the temple of God where they worshipped, Jeremiah preaches this sermon and tells them that this is coming and that they have misplaced their trust by believing that the temple of the Lord gives them a special hedge against evil. Uh, Jeremiah 26 will actually give you the background of this where 
we read the, the background where God speaks to Jeremiah and says, Stand in the courtyard in front of the temple of the Lord. Make an announcement to the people who have come there to worship from all over Judah. Give them my entire message. Include every word. Perhaps they'll listen and turn from their evil ways. And then I will change my mind about the disaster I am ready to pour out on them because of their sins. The, um, the temple of the Lord, I mean, if you can imagine what it would have been like in its, uh, in, its, in its magnificence, up on a hill, this incredible building built by Solomon, uh, put together and constructed by people from all over the world. This temple is in the land that was promised to Abraham. It was a shrine for the Ark of the Covenant. It was the city of David, Jerusalem. That's, that's where it was. All of these promises of God, these special and important promises of God were coming together. It was built by Solomon, uh, and he dedicated it. It survived the Assyrians hundreds of years before the Babylonians, the royal and religious leaders of Judah must have felt particularly blessed to have this place there that was a symbol of God's presence, a shrine to the God who rattled the empire of Egypt and freed the people who were enslaved there, who gave them a new identity. He brought about a religious uh, revival in the days of Solomon and Israel's light was shining to nations everywhere. And people believed that, that Israel represented God's special favor. And they were learning. Now, if you went to worship in that temple, you had to feel particularly blessed. When the northern tribes rebelled after Solomon died, they broke off with their own worship. And the Assyrians invaded, and they... Were, um, were subjected and conquered by the Assyrians. But that temple stood forevermore for hundreds of years before Jeremiah. People were going to be telling the story that because that temple is there with all of this special meaning, then surely we're especially protected and favored. Now, with that kind of mindset, Jeremiah has to go in front of these people and say to them, you have misplaced your trust in all of this. That's not going to be a message that's very well received, right? I mean, think of it like this. If you can remember in the months uh, after the 9-11 attacks, our country got together. Uh, we praised law enforcement. We praised rescue workers. We sang patriotic songs in church. There was no red state or blue state divide at that point. We were all red, white, and blue. We were one people. And imagine that someone with some insight in the future stood among us in 2001 and said, by the way, 20 years from now, you'll be divided all over again, maybe even more divided than you've ever been, and there's going to be this big pandemic and no one's going to know how to fire missiles at it. You would have said, that's, that's unpatriotic and inappropriate. Get out of here. We don't want to hear you. That's the task that Jeremiah has. And so Jeremiah has to preach this sermon to those people who are coming together for worship. 
from Jeremiah 7. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really want to change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you're trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we're safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors. I'll thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. So do not pray for this people, Jeremiah, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. Do you not see what they're doing in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, the women knead the dough and make cakes to offer to the Queen of Heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods and arouse my anger, but I am the But am I the one they are provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and beast, on the trees of the field, and on the crops of your land, and it will burn and not be quenched. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go ahead, add your burnt offerings to other sacrifices, and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them commands like this, Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward, not forward. From the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets, but they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their ancestors. God asked Jeremiah to deliver this message, and the main point of the message is this, that the Judeans believe that they are blessed because they are God's neighbors. God lives right there in their neighborhood. And His name is right there on that temple. And they believe that that makes them particularly blessed because they know 
how to keep God in that temple. They know how to serve God in that temple. Meanwhile, they treat their neighbor Judeans like trash. And God says that's not going to work. They have misplaced their trust in a religious place and religious procedure. They've corrupted this place that means something to them and God has graciously given it to them by allowing his name to be put on it and they go there and they pray while at the same time they're taking advantage of other people. Jeremiah's sermon says that every time they get together and they sing songs and they greet one another they've corrupted what should be a house of prayer to God. They've made it into a den of robbers. It's probably not unlike the situation that Jesus himself observed in the second temple 600 years after this when he saw that it was turned into an institution that kept a religious machine a religious system going and it fleeced people and it gave them false hope and it told them that if they didn't do things in a particular way then they weren't pleasing God but they had the answers that would allow people to do things the right way and Jesus said prayers being overlooked because of procedure and because of this opportunity to control and manage people. People who should have been cared for were being used to prop up a system of rituals that didn't allow anyone to experience God's love and mercy. That misplaced trust was there in the days of Jesus. It's, it was misplaced trust in the time of Jeremiah. And it's still misplaced trust for us also Especially if we put more trust in our ability to know how to have a decent and orderly worship than in knowing the God who's worthy of worship. When we do that, we misplace our trust in our own knowledge and our own ability instead of the God who gives us grace to know and grace to do. It's much easier, though, It's much easier to maintain rituals than it is to maintain a relationship with a creator and savior who's calling us to live faithfully in the midst of others. Relationships are always hard. They're fluid. Things happen. You can't predict things. And and God is living. He's not a, a concept or a force that we can manage and manipulate with rituals and charms and spells and words. He's a living creator who puts the claim on us. We don't put the claim on him. And when we decide that we're going to live by that pattern more than we're going to trust in the one who calls us to live our best lives, well, there's going to be consequences. It's not just that it's weak. There's more consequences. There's serious consequences to reducing our faith down to a bland worship show on a Sunday. It's not just boring and weak, but it can lead to serious problems. And here's where history helps us. Jeremiah backs up his warning to the people with two history lessons. He warns them not to put their trust in the deceptive words, this is the temple, which was their their opening statement to say, ah, the temple of the Lord is here. And he gives them two history lessons. The first history lesson is the history lesson of Shiloh. You'll read about Shiloh in 1 Samuel 4. Centuries before the Ark of the Covenant was kept in that magnificent temple in Jerusalem, centuries before there was even a Jerusalem, the Ark of the Covenant was kept in a shrine in a town called Shiloh, up in the hill country of Ephraim. 
That's the place where Hannah goes and prays because she wants a child. And God gives her that child, and she names that child Samuel, who leads his people. There's a priest there named Eli, and he's managing the system. And he has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who are even worse than he is at all this. In fact, Hophni and Phinehas have developed a system where when people come to please God and bring sacrifices, they make sure that they get their cut. And more than what God allowed. They're using this ritual in this place to take advantage of people rather than bring people into better relationship with God. When Israel then goes to war against their neighbors, the Philistines, they lose. They had 4,000 casualties. That's battle number one. They regroup and they say, how are we going to defeat these Philistines? And they say, you know what we didn't do? We didn't take the Ark of the Covenant in front of us. Oh, of course. The Ark of the Covenant is like, it's like a charm. It's like a special shield. If you carry it out, then God's going to give you the victory. So they go and they get Hophni and Phinehas. They get the Ark of the Covenant. They, they dust it off. They, they, they clear away the cobwebs. They carry it out and they say, ha ha, we're unstoppable now. And their loss to the Philistines this time is even worse. They lose 30,000 people. Hophni and Phinehas die. The news of that leads to the death of Eli. Putting our trust and security in sacred places and sacred rituals does not save us from ungodly behavior. God graciously gives us ways to commune with him and to be changed. But it's up to him. He's sovereign. He can take it away or give it. These things don't become special in and of themselves because of what we call it. Look. I'm coming to you today live from 900 North Waldron Road. We call this the auditorium. But how many times have we caught ourselves calling this the sanctuary? Why is this the sanctuary? The whole earth is God's sanctuary because he made it. At least he made the rest of the earth. We made this out of materials and things that he gave us. But all of it is, is indifferent. Whether you're here or whether you're out there online, wherever you're at. God is near and present because of his grace, not because we have some system we can rig to get him there. The consequences are death, and the consequences are spiritual death. And I'm not just talking about uh, damnation in hell. I'm talking about the consequences of spiritual death. Think about it like this. How many times have we asked ourselves, gosh, I would really like to experience the life-transforming power of God's Spirit, but I don't think I ever have. Well, maybe one of the reasons we haven't experienced that is because we keep God at a distance managing Him with all these rules and rituals that we think make Him happy. How are you going to have a relationship with somebody like that? You're not going to experience it, and it's going to lead to spiritual weakness. But how can we think that God is limited to certain places and certain proper rituals? That's... Not relationship. Well, that's the second history lesson that Jeremiah gives the people because that's what they had defaulted to. They basically had a religious system going on where you go to the temple, you say it's the temple of the Lord. we got all the history. It makes sense. He says, oh, okay, let's talk about that history. History lesson number two is Egypt. It's the Exodus. God reminds them who they were. He tells them their story. And if you don't know your story, you don't know who you are. Their story was that their ancestors were slaves in Egypt. They were oppressed. Egypt had had made, turned them into brickmakers. They were in service of the Pharaoh. They weren't in service to their God who called their ancestors, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. 
But God rescued them from slavery, and so he has to start teaching them how to worship. And the reason that he has to do this is because he wants them to know him. No one in their living memory or even in their extended historical memory knew God the way that Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob did. Only Moses knew God in that way. And so all of these things that they're going to do, learning about the sacrifices, learning about coming to the tabernacle, learning about how to purify themselves, it's not to appease God. God is not some force like luck or karma that gets angry or gets happy and you can get blessings or you can get curses. It's not like that. God wants to know them. He's alive and he has, he has a heart and he has, he has feeling and thought. And he wants them to to know him. And so all of this is to teach them. It works like this. If you grew up in Egypt as a slave to Pharaoh, you, you didn't think about, hey, what am I going to be when I graduate? No, you knew. From the day you were born, you knew. You're going to be a brickmaker, And you're going to make whatever Pharaoh wants you to make. And even if you had some other job, like you were a midwife, well, you know what? You were a midwife to brickmakers who were giving birth to little brickmakers. So everybody was brickmakers. Everybody lived because Pharaoh allowed them to live, and their purpose was all about serving Pharaoh and the empire of Egypt. And God says, that's not right. So he rescues them. He gives these nobodies their true calling and their true identity to say that they are somebodies because they're his children. He gets them out of Egypt, but now he has to get Egypt out of them, and that's what these sacrifices are all about it means they need to do things in a new way that enables them to see God enables them to see the world and it enables them to see one another in different terms for instance when you give God a sacrifice of a bull God doesn't need a bull what's he going to do with it he made it he can make more But you giving that to him teaches you how to be generous and care about God. And and then God puts a little rule on it. He says, oh, by the way, if you give me that bull, guess what? you got to eat the meat in one day. Now, how are you going to do that? You're going to get everybody together. You're going to have a barbecue. And see, then what happens because God gives them those rules, those ways of learning it. God is honored. His grace is remembered. Food is shared. And people are fed. And God is pleased because that's what allows him to dwell with that that's why he chooses to dwell with the people to see his people change like that but the goal of these sacrifices is not to support an economy it's not to secure favors from god the goal is to teach people to obey in a trusting relationship with god that's why it's called walking in god's way because why walking why do you use walking there well because if you're walking you're going somewhere and you're doing something Otherwise, we can just hold God at bay with a bunch of rules and say, yeah, yeah, I've checked into the office and I've done the checklist. God sends Jeremiah because even with a great accomplishment like the temple, the people have reduced it down to a giant religious charm and they show up to go through the rituals that appease God so that they can go on about their their lives their way. Now, I ask you, you may be thinking, okay, these are great history lessons, but is it possible that we've done this at times? It was nature for the Israelites to do that. And if it was was in their nature for them to do that, then why is it any different for us? Isn't it possible that we can always run the risk of turning this into a procedure and overlooking 
the relationship with God? Think about how you would answer these questions. How have we always evaluated our worship? Up until this pandemic, how have we, you know, what, what is our system for rating a good worship? How many showed up? And what does that tell us? How long was the sermon? Mm. Yeah, how many, how, how many uh, got communion today? Did we do communion right? Did we get the right key in the tempo on songs? Because you know that matters. Bad songs don't get to heaven. Was anyone upset? That's one of our, our big checkpoints. Was anyone upset? Because if somebody was upset, then maybe we did worship wrong. Because everybody has to come into worship and feel better. Did everyone like it? Sometimes we have sort of this, um, this is a dated reference, but we have this American bandstand way of doing worship. You know, It's got a good beat and you can dance to it, but you're not supposed to dance to it because that offends God. So, anyway. Now, how often do we do the customer service survey with worship? And like a, we're like an airline, and we say to people, we, we, we actually do this sometimes. We know that you have many options when you worship. We know that you have many options when you tune in for worship. Thank you for worshiping with us today. I hear that all the time on airlines. Just once, I would like the airline uh, attendant to say, hey, you're here, you didn't crash. You ought to be grateful. I mean, you got here, so what? When we misplace our trust in a place or attendance or whether we like it or more importantly whether others like it we're not asking better questions like were we privileged to honor God today were we privileged to be invited into his presence wherever we're at was anyone convicted today because they heard the word of the Lord did we hear anything from God today that means we need to change some things not just the furniture but we need to change some things about our life together do we ever ask ourselves, so after today and after this time we've spent, how are we going to obey God today? To be able to do that and to understand that worship is walking with God and it's meeting with God and it's living in communion with God. To do that, we have to replace our misplaced trust with a kind of every place trust. Because we've said for years, and we know that it's not right, we talk about going to church. But we always tell ourselves, but that's not church, we're the church, uh-huh. And you know what, if that's the phrase we use, fine, but maybe we ought to shift it around. Maybe we can say things like, you know what, it's good to go to worship, it's good to get together and worship, and maybe now we'll appreciate that more. But wherever we're at, in whatever place, in every place, we can trust in God and we can rely on Him no matter where we go, no matter what we've lost. If we've lost the ability to get out, if we've lost the ability to have communion served to us, if we've lost the ability to stream on YouTube flawlessly, no matter what, God's here and He graciously allows us to be with Him. We ought to be embracing that. And today, now, God has given us the opportunity to praise Him and encourage one another. He's given us the opportunity to hear our story from His Word. And we believe that Jesus is embodied in all of this. And it's not in this place, but it's in every place. And God's going to give us the opportunity to come to His table. So I pray to God that we're learning some things about communing with Him and walking closely 
in a loving relationship with him. We're going to sing a song, and then we will take communion together on site and online. I 